Hey guys, my name is Nicole Escobar and I am your host. I am also the director of Trees of Hope, which is a nonprofit in South Florida that exists to train, educate, and equip parents on how to protect the children in their life from being sexually abused. We also offer survivor-led healing support groups for victims of sexual abuse. We wanna welcome you because this is our podcast. We hope it encourages you, we hope it inspires you, and we hope you leave here knowing that hope is real, your story matters, and that you are more than just a hashtag. So let's get to our next episode. Hey guys, welcome back to episode two of the Not Just a Hashtag podcast. My name is Nicole Escobar and I'm your host and I'm here with my co-hosts and mental health counselors, Holly and Kristen. Unfortunately, Mariah is not here today. She's not feeling well, but we send you love. We miss you. On this episode, we want to focus on sexual abuse myths. We believe that if we can dispel the toxic victim blaming myths about sexual abuse, you, me, everyone are better prepared to start the healing process. So Kristen and Holly, why are dispelling myths so important for a survivor to heal? Um, I think that, you know, those myths, they keep us a prisoner. And I think so many of us who have overcome abuse in our lives, we get trapped in that thinking that it's somehow our fault. And I think when we're stuck in that thinking, it, it paralyzes us from moving forward in our healing process. Um, and I think a lot of us have carried that for so long that we start to believe that it's the truth. Right. I mean, I definitely feel that for myself, 100%. How about you, Kristen? I think Holly said it so well um, that, listen, What part of what happens, the lies begin to be inserted during the abuse. And so the best um, one of, or maybe the primary remedy that needs to happen is truth, truth, truth and more truth because everything about um the abuse brought on you know lies basically about who you are or that it was your fault and et cetera, et cetera. so, so truth is so important yeah so dispelling the myths of sexual abuse was probably the most eye-opening lesson for me um at trees of hope we do healing support groups and i think it's in like chapter three or four that's when we cover all of the uh false beliefs and you know um false beliefs and myths are very similar and that was the most eye-opening for me and that's the one where i started going okay i was sexually abused then because there is no escaping what i'm reading here right this is what has happened to me so it's when really my healing began and it was when i started to appropriate the blame on the proper person who was the abuser rather than thinking i was responsible and i think knowing the truth about anything traumatic will set you free it helps guide you on what's truly going on but the key to all of this is you have to believe these facts to be true you have to believe the truth in order to walk in freedom and if you don't believe them you won't heal properly and society's understanding of sexual violence can be influenced by misconceptions and false beliefs false beliefs so separating myths from facts is critical to stopping further sexual violence and for you to get the proper healing that you need so we've got a bunch of myths we're going to go down and we're going to give you facts to them and kind of explain them more in depth The first one is, you can spot a perpetrator by the way they look or act. 
Well, we all know that there's no surefire way way to identify a person who sexually abuses. Many times they completely look normal. They're friendly. They're charming, not life-threatening. And statistically speaking, 93% of sexual abuse is carried out by someone who you know, love and trust. So how do they become known, love and trusted people is because they set off no alarms that they are somebody that you shouldn't be around. So the thing that we encourage you to do is check your circle, check your child's circle. Always make sure you know who your child is hanging out with, knowing the kids they're playing with, knowing the parents of the kids, knowing who's gonna be at parties. You always want to be safer than sorry. It's just the way it goes. Myth number two, if you didn't fight back, you must not have thought it was that bad. Well, the fact is, during sexual assault, it's extremely common to freeze. Your brain and body shut down in shock, making it difficult to move, speak, or think. What happened to you is never your fault, no matter how your body responded. So Holly or Kristen, I would love to hear from you guys on this. What happens to a body during sexual assault or traumatic experience like that that makes someone freeze? Well, and if you think about what you um, described here is um, the shock part of it, absolutely that's a part of it. The other part of, of that freeze is really your body going into survival mode when it determines that your life may be threatened. Um, that is an automatic response that likely you're not even consciously thinking of. It's just many um, systems, like the higher level processing and so forth, are shutting down to just get you to survive what's going on. And this is one of the things I think that's that's so difficult um, during the healing process is recognizing that your body didn't fail you mm. by freezing or shutting down, so to speak. It's got you through it to survive. And this is something that we process a lot in therapy too. Mm-hmm. that you, it, your body didn't fail. It did exactly what it needed to do at that time. Um, because many times you instinctually, you even know that that person it was bigger than you, was potentially stronger than you, that you were not going to be able you know, to fight. And so that's, that is definitely a myth. They're like, why didn't you fight back? You must have wanted it. It must have been okay. That is not accurate whatsoever. You were just trying to survive. And I love, I just want to add on that. I love that you said um, that it's actually like a really amazing thing that our bodies do for us. And I love to look at it that way. I've shared before I'm in recovery from my eating disorder as well. So I love to celebrate my body, like what my body does for me. And so whenever I think about my previous abuse and all that I've gotten through, I think, wow, like how amazing our brains are and our bodies are wired so that we can survive these things that we weren't meant to go through, but that our bodies somehow serve us in a way that we can get through it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love looking at it that way, like while this should have never happened and it's tragic and it's not right at all, that our bodies can freeze or that we can dissociate or we can do whatever we need to do to get through that moment, you know, and survive it. Because mm-hmm. if, if, we, if we could experience the totality of what was truly going on, I mean, we would be wrecks. Yes. Like, I don't know how we could get by. So something just sparked in me um, a question, maybe you guys have the answer to it or or not, but when someone's being sexually harassed, I know like at a job or something like this, like when a boss does like says something inappropriate and women freeze, this happened to me, is the same similar situation where you're like, you just don't even know what to do. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Very similar thing going on. And think about the power structure too. 
you know, if a boss, so to speak, is saying this, and you know, it, sometimes it's even a coworker, and it, but it's a very um, just a really similar response is just. Um, I think sometimes it's shock. Again, going back to the same thing we started with, shock. You were not e- expecting this even to happen. Right. So true. And I think, sorry to add on that, so much of how we survived as a young child is how we still survive now. So we find ourselves falling back into old patterns. So if I froze when I was a three-year-old, four-year-old little girl, I find myself as an adult that that becomes my survival mechanism still. And we know that in EMDR, that's one of the really awesome things is it goes back and targets those early memories and helps to reprogram that so that you don't have to live in a trauma response. But we know that is a trauma response. That's something that you automatically go to because your brain goes, okay, you need to survive. So even if it's just a verbal sexual abuse, your brain goes to survival. What do I do? I freeze because that's what I've always done. So how do you fight that? Because like, for instance, just recently, somebody said something to me that I felt like was really inappropriate for a guy, especially in his position. And I froze, I, I giggled. And I, I was like, I thought I was so fur- much further along where I could deck them in the face <laughs> or mm. whatever. So what can somebody do to start exercising those um, like empowerment muscles? I think it's, um, I think it's allowing yourself space, like a moment to actually check in on how you feel. Okay, so wait a second. I just went through that. My response was to laugh. And I think that's probably because I was uncomfortable because society, um, also there's a whole dynamic that like, and this is just a whole can of worms, but, um, that women are supposed to be cooperative and nice, right. And not, um, cause too many waves. And that's not always the case, but there is, there is an element of that going on, um, at times and in, in different contexts. And so, if you allow yourself a moment to say, okay, why did I laugh? Okay, I wasn't comfortable. Um, I didn't know what else to say. Is that how I really feel? How do I really feel about that? That wasn't cool. I was I was offended by that. That, was, that made me uncomfortable. I have to use my voice, which was muted or even taken away or silenced during whatever has happened to me, maybe in the past. I need to use my voice to say something. And it does not have to be an aggressive confrontation. In other words, because sometimes we'll avoid that because we don't like, I don't want to get into a big thing, but you can say, please, you know, what you said made me uncomfortable. Please don't ever say that to me, something like that to me again. Um, And if that person does respond poorly, then you may need to talk to HR. You may need to talk to someone else, you know, yes, this could, could this escalate? Is there risk involved in saying something? Absolutely. But I think um, the truth is important. And if it was something that made you uncomfortable, you need to use your voice. And I tell people this who have gone through um, times when they have been victimized in the past, one of the first things that was taken away was your voice. You have to exercise your voice. Mm. So good. Okay, so that will lead us into the number three myth, which is people who are abused ask for it by the way they dress or act. Well, the fact is, is that sexual abuse is a crime of opportunity. And studies show that abusers choose victims based on their vulnerability, not how sexy they appear or how flirtatious they are. Um, Just to add to that, that's why children are are victims. And that's why adults, older, elderly people can tend to be victims and people with disabilities. What do they all have in common? 
vulnerability. They're not sexy. They, sh- you know, not we. You know what I mean, people. It's not mm-hmm. like we're looking at them going, mm, "That's my type right there," mm-hmm. right? It's something that is just a simple vulnerability. Okay, number four myth is sexual abuse only happens with strangers. Okay, as we said before, the fact is that ninety-three percent of child sexual abuse victims know their abuser. This is broken down to fifty-nine percent are acquaintances. 34 are family members, and only a mere 7% is a stranger. So the likelihood of you getting raped on the streets by a stranger is very slim. The likelihood of you knowing somebody in your child's circle is much higher. So that whole stranger danger is, teach that, but also teach that there's no means no for a child and that they have the right to say no to adult when an adult makes them feel uncomfortable or asks them to do something they don't want to do. Myth number five is only girls are sexually abused. The fact is, is one in six boys will be sexually abused by the age of 18. But again, that is only based on reportings. And I'm assuming that is a much higher statistic because with boys who've been sexually abused, there's a even bigger stigma of not coming out and telling about it because of the fact that a boy feels their manhood was taken from them. And there's a lot more shame attached to it. I know the men that I have in my life who have been sexually abused, one of the things they did not want to do is tell their parents because they were afraid that their parents may think that they were gay. And I understand that, um, but the reality is is that boys do get sexually abused and they can get sexually abused by girls. Again, it's a vulnerability. Myth number six, sexual abuse only happens in low-income areas. Well, the fact is that sexual abuse crosses all classes of society. There is no race, social, or economic class that is immune to sexual abuse. I've shared on previous podcasts, when I told my parents I was sexually abused, they were like, we grew up in a great neighborhood. It doesn't matter. You can be human trafficked in a good neighborhood. It does not matter. It only matters that there was a vulnerability. And the vulnerability that I had at that time was a unsupervised um, playing with my friends where no families, no parents were around. So that was my vulnerability. Myth number seven is children speak up about their abuse. The fact is, is close to 66% of children victims may not tell their parents or anyone else because they fear being blamed, punished, or not believed. Kristen, give us some feedback on this. Why um, or what can happen to a child if they're not believed at an early age? I think if a child um, actually does is able to speak up um, and tell a parent or a caregiver or, or someone in authority what's happened. Um, first of all, how brave um, is that, that that actually happened? And thank God they actually said something um, to someone that can actually do something about that. When a child is, is not believed, however, I think um, the primary thing that happens is this, uh, this really breaks um continues the break of safety. It's almost like it shatters um, something even further because the abuse in and of itself was bad enough for then a child not to be believed. It just, it almost like reinforces it again that it happened. Um, 
think of the confusion that can happen for a, a child when they're not believed because they already took the step, the scary step of saying something, and then to then not be believed, they're going to learn that when they say something, it won't necessarily be believed. It won't necessarily have value. So going back to that same thing we were talking about as far as um, the voice being taken away in abuse, um, this is a, a, another thing that just reinforces that. You know, when you say something, it's not going to be listened to or respected or, or believed. Mm. It's very detrimental. And of course, at times it can be not believed because of um, misunderstanding, because of ignorance. There's other times when it's it's something, you know, potentially, you know, malicious. Like it can't be acknowledged because um, people, you know, whoever's involved, a family member or something, and, and other family members don't want the consequences to then happen because... Yes, it's complicated. It it um, can cause problems in family, further problems in families when this these kind of things ca- um, come out. But if we as adults are not going to protect the children around us, what hope do these kids have? You know, when a child comes to an adult and says that something happened, and maybe it's an adult that already did the abuse, like where where's that child supposed to go? Right. So I'm assuming the trust that that child has is is definitely tainted for sure. trusting adults. So probably growing up, they're going to struggle with relationships, especially the most intimate ones. And I don't mean sexual intimacy. I'm no, talking no, about just sure. intimacy. Sure. And but I and now listen. At the same time, we say all of these potential you know things that could happen. All of this can also be restored. And that's, of course, with going back and um, talking about what's true and being believed. I mean, this can be restored. This can be redeemed. But yes, I think it, I mean, there's so many potential ramifications of of not being believed. And just like you said, affecting relationships, um, you know, and again, trust and, and so forth. But I think, I think more than even, it's not necessarily trusting um, other people, but it's also not trusting yourself. Hmm. Because there's already an, a surreal element to abuse that happens mentally. Like, did that really happen? Was that really that bad? Am I remembering it correctly? There is a whole element that's that's unreal anyways. And then to not be believed by an authority figure just adds to that. Yeah, I want to add to that. So, I mean, I can relate so much to what Kristen just said in my own story. I love my parents, but my mom specifically couldn't handle my abuse. So when I told her... It was kind of like, no, you're over, you're too sensitive or you're exaggerating or it wasn't that bad. And that was exactly how I felt. Like, I felt like, did it really happen? Am I making this up? Does it not matter? It's maybe not that big of a deal. And I think for me, like we shared earlier, I did. I lost my voice for a very long time. Um, It took me a really long time to learn how to have a voice because I learned at age four years old that my voice didn't matter. That when I was brave enough to speak, nobody heard me. So then the next time that it happened, guess what? I didn't speak up because in my little head, I thought, well, I talked the first time and nobody heard me, you know? So I think that's why no matter how little or how big, like always listen, whether it's about sexual abuse or anything else. I always say, if you listen to the little things when they're little, they'll share the big things when they're big, you know, like it's, it's all important to them. I absolutely love that. You just said that because if I could sit down with my mom and dad, I would say to them, y'all never listened when I was a kid and you don't listen now. 
So what makes you think you're going to be my go-to when I'm going through something? Because they're always getting mad that I don't, like, I handle things on my own. And then I go to them after it's been solved. And I'm like, what, what? why do you think you would be my go-to? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But I love that you said that. So parents, listen up. Like, this is your opportunity to leave a legacy with your children of listening and hearing them, loving them, letting them know no conversation is off the table Mm -hmm. and that they will always be believed. You have the power in your words now for little ones to say to them, if anything ever makes you uncomfortable, always feel free to tell me about it no matter what you will not get in trouble and truly follow through with that mm. we teach that all the time at trees of hope in our prevention workshop and everything that we do in, in regards to prevention material that we give out because children need to have a safe place they need to know that you are not going to after they tell that not going to not believe them but also you go report it or you go do something with that information like they need to know you're safe Okay, so now that brings me into myth number eight. That is that sexual abuse in families is a one-time incident. The fact is, is that studies show and indicate that most child sexual abuse continues for at least two years before it is reported. And in most cases, it doesn't stop until it's reported. So if somebody's being sexually abused in their home, it's not a one-time event. It's going to be an ongoing thing. Myth number nine, preschoolers do not need to know about child sexual abuse and would be frightened if educated about it. The fact is, is that numerous educational programs are available to teach young children about body safety skills and the difference between okay and not okay touches. These programs can help children develop basic safety skills in a way that help that is helpful rather than frightening. At Trees of Hope, we are currently working on a children's book for preschoolers that walks parents and children through the importance of body safety and giving the child confidence they need to trust their gut when someone asks them to do something they don't want to do. We're going to talk about this in future episodes, but I am so pumped for this. I just got the content back. It is the cutest story I think I've ever heard. Um, I felt like I was right there with the characters, and I'm so excited. The dog, Coco, plays a role, and that's my dog, Coco. (laughs) And she will teach children how well she learns no and how well she learns yes. So it's gonna, it's really gonna be a really fun story. And I hope that when it's out that you parents will grab a copy because I really think it's gonna impact your life. Okay, myth number 10. Children who are sexually abused will never recover. Fact is, many children are quite resilient and with a combination of effective counseling and support from their parents or caregivers, children can and do recover from such experiences. Holly, tell us how you have seen children recover and what does the recovery process look like for a child? Um, absolutely, children recover. And i that is one of the biggest gifts of working with children is because they are the most resilient, bravest, smartest little people, you know, and to be able to watch how quickly they're able to process their trauma and walk through it. Um, this does not mean that it won't be an ongoing process. Like I think that's important to remember because we know that children's brains are constantly changing and growing. So I always tell my parents, okay, we're going to come in and we're going to do some work. And then we may take a break for a little while. And then as their brain is evolving, they may come back and we'll do a little bit more. Um, but in my experience, to see how 
how brave and honest and open these kids are to come in and kind of, and like I said in the last episode, therapy with children is not the same as therapy with adults. So I don't sit there and say, so tell me about your sexual abuse. You know, it's not like that. We use play and we use, you know, all different platforms to get them to process their trauma without even having to speak it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the most important thing is a lot of times they come in and that is the first place that they're heard. And we also know that in order for them to completely heal, it is a family process. So as the parents come aboard and learn more too, it empowers them to also heal because they, they're injured too through the process. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Okay, uh, that brings us to myth number 11. Child sexual abuse is always perpetrated by adults. Well, the fact is that 23% of reported cases of child sexual abuse are perpetrated by individuals under the age of 18, while some degree of sexual curiosity and exploration is to be expected between children of about the same age. When one child coerces another to engage in adult-like sexual activities, the behavior is unhealthy and abusive. Both the abuser and the victim can benefit from counseling. To be honest, this was a myth that I had to explain to my parents because they kept saying, I've shared this before, wasn't it exploratory, blah, blah, blah. And I tried to explain to them the minute this person brought me into a bush and and when I say a bush, it was like literally a set of trees with a little hole in it. And um, when he did that, he coerced me to take off my clothes. And I can't remember full details, but it wasn't like me going, yeah, let's do this. This sounds fun, right? Like, let's explore. This was like, oh my gosh, this feels odd. How did I get here? I don't want to be doing this. This is not good. Then his mom coming in and screaming at us. So it's definitely it can happen. And I've had many people come to Trees of Hope telling me, I haven't been sexually abused because I think it was exploratory. And the minute I say, was it something you wanted to do? And they say no, then just go from there because you have to find healing from this. And you can't put it in the category of exploratory because if you do, you're minimizing what took place. That brings us to myth number 12, talking about sexual abuse with a child who has such suffered such an experience will only make it worse. The fact is, although children often choose not to talk about their abuse, there is no evidence that encouraging children to talk about sexual abuse will make them feel worse. On the contrary, treatment from a mental health professional can minimize the physical, emotional, and social problems of these children by allowing them to process their feelings and fears related to this abuse. So Holly, I know you've talked about this a couple of times, but I'm sure you've seen this play out. And you've seen the positive um, impact that mental health counseling can have on a child as they process their their traumatic experience. Yeah, this is a really, I think, important one to talk about because um, I think, especially as a parent, coming from a parent side, what do you do when your kid comes to you and says, hey, somebody touched me inappropriately or I've been sexually abused? Um, You obviously want to say, first thing, I believe you. (laughs) And then your probably gut reaction is like, you want to know all the details. What happened? How did it happen? When did it happen? And I think that allowing your child to guide the conversation kind of like you do when you're teaching sex education you want to allow them to kind of lead you because you don't want to push them too far that is very important like you're not going to harm them by talking about it but you don't want to re-traumatize them Mm -hmm. and so i think one of the biggest things which is why mental bringing them to a mental health counselor is so important is that 
you know, then you don't have to be the one that's solely responsible for that. You know, you can be the safe place where you can let them know that you believe them, you hear them, you're there for them to walk them through it. But then you can allow a counselor to use her expertise to kind of guide them through that. Um, And like I said in the last um, question, like we don't directly talk about it. A lot of times kids can't talk about it. Sometimes they can. Sometimes I'll have a four or five-year-old who is ready to just talk about it, but I allow them to lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we know that a lot of the processing can happen without using any words because kids use play and they use, you know, Sandra, they use art, they use different things to process their trauma and they don't have to talk about it, you know, and, and they, then they're allowed to be in charge of the process. We allow them to lead the way. If I can just add in here real real quick too, in regards to working with adults, um, with abuse, um, a lot of times too, I mean, we won't ask them to um, tell their, the story of the abuse. What we're going to do is um, similar to what Holly's describing, um, particularly like with EMDR uh, therapy, they in fact don't have to go through that whole story because it can absolutely be re-traumatizing. But um, there's a, you know, with EMDR, they are able to process it and their brain, we just guide the healing and their brain will go wherever it needs to go to heal. And so, and they never, and I always tell people in therapy, they never have to say anything they don't want to say, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's really important um, for people to know too, because sometimes I think people do shy away from, you know, I don't want to have to retell this or relive it again and again, that kind of thing. So um, there's there's times where that may be an important part of their uh, someone's journey, but um, we're careful to make sure to not be re-traumatizing someone by ha- having them do that. Yeah, one of the steps that we have at Trees of Hope is to write your story down on paper. But one of the things I always teach, and I, I, I know collectively we do here, is if you can't write the story down, just write, I was sexually abused. Mm. That's powerful enough. Absolutely. I love and that. to be honest, that's how I started. I it was that. just simply saying that, and then I read that. <laughs> and yeah, because I would like, imagine even that what? was like <laughs> yeah. probably difficult to write, right? Yes. At some point. Because I felt like, okay, I'm basically going, I'm weak. That's mm-hmm. how it felt at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Now it feels way different. So, right. you know, it's just all these things are so powerful and they can really help you if you just take the time to do them. Mm. Okay, so now we're going on to myth number 13, which is sexual assault is most likely to happen outside in a dark, dangerous place. The fact is the majority of sexual assaults happen in private spaces like a residence or a private home. Myth number 14. It's not a big deal to have sex with a person while they are drunk, stoned, or passed out. The fact is if a person is unconscious or incapable of consenting due to the use of alcohol drugs, they cannot legally consent. Without consent, it's sexual assault. I love that so much because I use that when I'm explaining to somebody okay so you were intoxicated how could you have said yes like you don't even need to be obliterated what's the word obliterated (laughs) say that again what is it obliterated I don't know how to say that clearly (laughs) but when you're that you're obviously not able to consent Mm. but even if you are just not in the right state of mind because of drugs or alcohol just even just a little too much and you still can't look someone in the eye or even just physically look at them or say, yes, let's go. Yeah, that's not consent. I'm sorry, it's just not. So guys, if you're out there, do not try to have sex with a girl who's not conscious. Mm. Uh, Myth number 15, 
If a person didn't scream or fight back, it probably wasn't sexual assault. The fact is, is when a person is sexually assaulted, they may become paralyzed with fear and unable to fight back. They may be fearful if they struggle, the perpetrator will become more violent. If they are under the influence of alcohol alcohol or drugs, they may be incapacitated or unable to resist. We've kind of said that before, but I hear a lot of people say, well, I didn't scream, I didn't fight back, and I know I could have. I know I could have. And it doesn't matter what you could have done, should have done, whatever. It matters what took place and what your body did. And the reality is is that you probably were paralyzed due to you trying to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And you, you froze, and that's okay. Okay, myth number 16. If a person isn't crying or visibly upset, it probably wasn't a serious sexual assault. The fact is, is every person responds to trauma of sexual assault differently. They may cry or they may be calm. They may be silent or very angry. Her behavior is not an indicator or his behavior is not an indicator of their experience. It is important not to judge a person by how they responded to their assault. Cannot tell you how many times people come here and they say, when he was touching me, I just sat there and my body just, you know, did the position and I just laid there and and I just look at them and I say, that's okay. Like, it's okay that that happened. Myth number 17 is if a person does not have obvious physical injuries like cuts or bruises, they probably were not sexually assaulted. Well, the fact is, is the lack of physical injury does not mean that a person wasn't sexually assaulted. An offender may use threats, weapons, or coercive actions that do not leave physical marks, but they can leave heart marks Hmm. that people can't see. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've had many of those. And much of it actually usually is that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's things that can't be seen. Exactly. So myth number 18 is people lie and make up stories about being sexually assaulted. The fact is, is the number of false reports for sexual assault is very low, consistent with the number of false reports for other crimes. Sexual assault carries such a stigma that many people prefer not to report it. Myth number 19, it wasn't rape, so it wasn't sexual violence. I cannot tell you how many people need to understand that that is so false. The fact is, is any unwanted sexual contact is considered to be sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse. A survivor can be severely affected by all forms of sexual violence or abuse, including unwanted fondling, rubbing, kissing, or other sexual acts. Many forms of sexual violence involve no physical contact, such as stalking or distributing intimate visual recordings. All of these acts are serious and can be damaging, and all of them are considered sexual abuse. So myth number 19 is people with disabilities don't get sexually assaulted. The fact is, is that people with disabilities are actually at a high risk of experiencing sexual assault. Those who live with activity limitations are over two times more likely to be victims of sexual assault than those who are able-bodied. The last and final myth is husbands cannot, or wives, cannot sexually abuse their spouses. The fact is sexual assault can occur in a marriage 
or other intimate partner relationships. That is so important for you to know because a lot of times I hear that women, specifically because of the Christian realm that I'm in, that women are supposed to just submit to their husbands and when they have to, you know, have sex. And I tell women all the time, no, you are not. God does not want that Mm -mm. at all. It's supposed to be in a loving relationship of two coming together and agreeing upon certain things. Okay, so we hope that Dispelling the Lies Mist has given you some clarity of what is sexual abuse and what is not. If you feel like you've connected to any of these facts and you want more information how to get healing, please reach out to us at podcast at treesofhope.org. Again, that is podcast at treesofhope.org. And honestly, if you just want to reach out about anything or just talk about this content that we've shared today, please feel free to reach out. Or if you want to say something encouraging, I'd love to hear from you. So next time on episode three, we will be looking at why we should each have a personal vision and mission statement for our lives and how doing so can create healthy boundaries that will keep us safe. So that's it for now. We love you. The best is yet to come. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. Maybe even consider rating the podcast or share it with one of your friends. It really makes all the difference. For more content from Trees of Hope and to connect with us, go to treesofhope.org. We love you. Bye.